HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Heritage Radio Network Farm Report. Today on the show, we have Kevin Looney of Drake's Bay Family Farms in Marin, California. And we'll also be talking with Sonny Fitch from Catalpa Farm in Columbia, in Columbia City. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Lorenzo. So here on the Farm Report, we like to think of ourselves as preservers of the oral histories of farmers. And this program is sort of a survey of American farmers whose practices we endorse. It's like okay. a state of the union for the farming community. So that being said, I want to lead by asking you what the history of your land is and how you became connected with it. Well, the history of our land, it's always been farmland for generations. I'm actually third generation on the land. And uh, our oyster farm has been, uh, you know, California's largest shellfish producer for almost 100 years. Okay. And I did a little research on your farm and found that you were recently vindicated after having your name muddied by the National Park Service. And uh, I wanted to ask you about this article that appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle on May 9th, uh, penned by Peter Fimright. Um, I just want to read, so, read a little bit from it so our listeners know what we're talking about. It says, and I quote, Supporters of a Marin County oyster farmer claimed victory Tuesday after a panel of scientists concluded that the National Park Service officials made errors, selectively presented information, and misrepresented facts in a series of reports about his Drake's Base shellfish operation. The findings mark the second time in a year that the Park Service has been put under a spotlight for essentially fudging data in its attempts to show that the Drake's Bay Oyster Company harmed the environment. So uh, this is what uh, we we don't we, we don't really like that article. We'd like to hear hear your side of the story. Yeah, you're right. It, it, unfortunately, the press uh, likes to hear all about the controversy. Um, what we really have is a is a traditional food production, very regionally appropriate and culturally appropriate. That's been for here for a long, long time. It preexisted the national seashore pre-existed the Wilderness Act, and, uh, you know, after all these decades of shellfish production, Drake's Estero, where the oysters live, ha was named Potential Wilderness because the natural biodiversity um, remained so healthy, and, you know, with the shellfish op operation. The problem is the Park Service now, the National Park Service, wants to kick out the oyster farm, 
remove the traditional use, um, and rename it wilderness. Now, this wilderness would be completely surrounded by livestock agriculture down to every shore. And um, it's what we're doing is we're really farming in farmland. We're not farming in wilderness. But there was some pushback to the Park Service because our community, our county, and our state uh, depends on this local sustainable seafood production. So to bolster their arguments, there were claims of serious environmental harm caused by the oyster farm. So what's really happened and unfolded over the last three years, really, um, is that all those claims turned out to be unsupported and, uh, and found that they were falsified or misrepresented, and there is, in fact, no documented harm from the oyster farm. So it really comes from an ideology of hands-off preservation, you know, a humanless landscape, you know, ideology to remove this traditional farming. So basically, to sum up your argument, you're saying that that the National Park Service fudged data to make it look like you were harming the environment so that they could deprive you of your land. That's correct. And it's more than that. You know, it's not just our family and our land. It's, uh, it's nearly, you know, it, it's a very significant part of the protein production, uh, certainly a, a large part of the shellfish production of the state, and uh, it, it plays a huge role in our local food system. Well, here at Heritage Radio Network, we don't think highly of people who claim that other people are harming the land just so that they can take it away from them. So this is what we think about all these fudge statistics. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about the delicate ecosystem from which your shellfish come, and tell me about how they keep the waters of Drake's Bay clean. Um, in, in contrary to what the National Park Service might have people think? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Shellfish aquaculture, just by nature, um, happens in the most beautiful bays and estuaries um, on our coastline because they require good water quality. Now, um, what they actually do is they are filter feeders, and they add value to the ecosystem. They're considered ecosystem builders or foundation species. Um, that filter feeding actually clears water. It takes out nutrients and sediments that would otherwise be considered pollutants, and it converts them into, um, it basically into elements that are usable by the plants. So. Subaquatic vegetation does Plankton, better. et cetera. All the, yeah, and the water cleared up means sunlight gets through and the subaquatic vegetation does better. So there's a whole list of ecosystem services provided by the oysters. So um, the World Wildlife Fund has actually stated that they believe the way that we raise our shellfish is actually a net benefit to the environment. And as you, as you know, that's, a, that's not said often about protein production. Sure. So one thing that I'm unclear about, though, is that if the shellfish acts as a filter for, for the water and keeps the water clean, how is it that all that bacteria and harmful 
harmful stuff doesn't end up in the shellfish that we then eat? That's a, that's a great question. Um, that's closely regulated. What we, when we call something a pollutant, that could be something as simple as nitrogen or phosphorus. Okay. Nitrogen and phosphorus are very important for the life cycle of an oyster. That's what they make their protein with. Now, if there are more dangerous bacteria, for example, that come from a watershed and wash off during rainfall, then the oysters and the oysters can filter that. That's not really a problem in Drake's Estera where we grow our oysters because the water stays extremely clean. It's the cleanest. Um, it, we have what's, what's called approved water. It's the only approved water in California. Um, Is it cold? So we're, we're ab- able to harvest all year round. But... Um, what they do is, is they measure, the health departments measure contaminants, and if there are any contaminants in the water, you refrain from harvest, then the oyster right, cleans gotcha. themselves out, and mm-hmm. then they're healthy again following the rainfall events. Mm-hmm. So now this is a personal question that I just, I've sort of, I've always wanted to ask an oyster farmer this. When I go eat oysters at a restaurant, I notice that some taste more or less like the sea. Does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. Okay, what determines the, the potency of this flavor and this taste? Well, And which are considered the better oysters? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm going to refer you to another industry that loves to talk about their terroir, like wine. Mm-hmm. All these different oyster farms... Grow, a, grow the same species for the most part. But every growing area, every bay, every estuary has its own flavor, has its own oceanography, its own substrates that will give characteristics to the oysters. We, kinda, we don't call it terroir. We kind of nickname it aguar. The taste of their place. A taste on of your their website. place. And so depending on the salinity of the growing area, you know, and the freshness of the oyster, when you take it right out of the water, you tend to have a little more of that saltiness and the brininess, the, the feel that you just dove into an ocean wave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's partially how fresh it is, and it's partially where it comes from. So now, it, when winemakers talk, when vintners talk about terroir, they're talking about tasting actually what, tasting the presence of what has been in the soil previous to the vines. And right. or contemporaneously, do you literally taste the presence of whatever has been in the ecosystem of your oysters in the oyster? And explain to me on a biological level how this transformation of taste is occurring. Well, um, I think it has something to do with the surrounding watershed. The watershed um, has different underlying rock. For example, we're out on the Pacific Plate. Um, Other oyster farms, um, their watershed uh, drains from the continental tectonic plate. Well, those different, they're different underlying rocks with different minerals in those rocks, and the oysters begin to take on some of that flavor. So you've probably tasted oysters that have more of a metallic flavor Uh and others that have less and maybe sweeter. Mm -hmm. Some of that has to do with that kind of a terroir. Okay. We, we have, uh, t- to more directly answer your question, we have customers that are really oyster aficionados. Mm-hmm. When I they, can imagine. Yes, and they just close their eyes, and they, they can tell you that they just feel, they can tell 
This came from Drake's Estero. They can taste it. They can smell it. And um, how that happens to me, I think, is... Uh, it's a spiritual experience, really. It, it really is. It, but it's, it is real because I have been at oyster tastings and have people pick up several oysters in a row up to 17. I was there at, at a Pacific Coast Shellfish Growers Association conference and we had a, we had like four people that could that tasted these 17 different oysters, four out of maybe 50 people or 40 people that named the origin for every single oyster. Well, you know Kevin's oysters when you taste them, I guess. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 we talked about what sets your oysters apart. Now let's talk about how the, how you set them apart by how you grow them. I um I was doing a little research on your website and I ran across some information about this off-bottom Japanese-inspired hanging culture method that's used by less than 5% of farmers in the US. Uh for those of us who are ignorant about shellfish farming, why don't you tell me a little bit more about what this method entails, why it's so infrequently used and how it gives your oysters that next level taste? Well, um those are good questions. The reason this was the, the, what inspired this Japanese hanging culture was back in the 1940s and 1950s, oysters in Drake's Estero were grown similarly to other oyster growing areas. That's directly on the bottom. And they would grow on the bottom and then they would be picked from the bottom and put in baskets and harvested. Well, Drake's Estero has a formidable oyster predator called a bat ray. Hmm. Bat rays ate most of the dangerous. oysters in Drake's Estero. So um, the farmer at the time spent a lot of time in Japan buying oyster seed and saw that they had these racks where the oysters hang, hung from the racks. And he thought, wow, I bet the bat rays couldn't get them. That was, so it was inspired for reasons to protect from predation. Today, we're, we're so thankful that that was chosen because what it really is is an, a very, very environmentally friendly way to grow an oyster. We plant from a vessel. We harvest from a vessel. Um, we don't disturb the substrates. Mm -hmm. But now with the oysters hanging from racks, they're up above the mud. Okay. So they, they're clean. They're fresh. We have the last oyster cannery in the state of California. So um, we have the only shucking and packing license in the state. When we, take the, when we open those oysters and we put them into jars, um, which, is, which we do with only a small portion, most of what we produce is live in the shell, but the oysters that we shuck and pack, the water stays crystal clear. The taste of the oyster is fresh. It doesn't taste like the mud or the sand Ugh. where it grows. This is really whetting my appetite. <laughs> um, the downside is it's, a, it's, it's much more expensive because we're competing against a technique, a bottom culture, where a boat can go out with a dredge and, uh, and rake the oysters and fill a barge in a short time with very little labor, where ours is very labor-intensive. Yeah, and I mean, this whole argument about, I mean, qu quality costs money, you know, I mean, in, in, in everything. So, I mean, I think consumers should be willing to pay the extra 
the extra money that it costs to produce the best product. And you know what? We have found that they they have supported us that way. Sure. People understand that if that it is better for the environment. They also understand that it's uh, superior quality, and and so um, we've been able to survive. Mm-hmm. So now these hanging racks also don't affect the ecosystem because these bat rays. These they wouldn't be in the bat rays ecosystem. The bat rays wouldn't be eating them, anyways, right? So it's not like it's because you're growing them, right? And so, right. so it's not adding sort of an artificial element to the bat ray ecosystem. Not really. Um, what I will say is they do get some of them because they they learn that they can bump into them and knock some off the strings. Fascinating. And get those, and we we just figure they earned those oysters. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Sure. Sure. Now, there's also something to be said for the fact that if if they weren't if they didn't become aware of the fact that they could bang them and get them, they would still find another way to survive within their ecosystem. So it's it's really not a disruption in any event. No, no. These are uh, they still have a beautiful natural biodiversity of shellfish, clams, oysters that um, that they still have. The bay is comp- full of these bat rays and stingrays, or not bat rays and and leopard sharks. It's an it's a amazingly uh, alive estuary. So we've got a couple minutes left, but I've got one really, really interesting question that I want to ask you. We like to get an idea from all our farmers of how changing global weather patterns will affect their farms. And I would think that because your farm consists of a fragile marine ecosystem that would be particularly impacted by even the most minute changes in global weather, Microbes don't have a natural defense system against temperature change, and if the microbes die by the millions and the billions, does it affect your oysters via some complex ecosystem change? It very well may. Um, we are watching that very closely. Um, it's very important to us because ocean acidification, um, which is part of the fallout of you know this uh, greenhouse gases can cause a huge problem with shellfish because these shellfish uh, produce their shells with calcium. And with the pH too low, they are not going to be able to produce their shell. So that's one issue. And we have to, so it just means we need to grow more shellfish because while we're producing these hundreds and hundreds of tons of shellfish meats per year, we're sequestering hundreds of tons of carbon Sure. In the shell, and so we're actually helping to resolve part of this, uh, part of the of the global warming issues. So, so you're saying that the, the shell is calcium rich, so it's made out of a similar, it's made out of a similar, um, what should I say? I guess substance as yeah. nails, right? It's it's actually fifty percent carbon. Okay. And uh, and we produce hundreds and hundreds of tons of that shell per year, which which safely sequesters the carbon away. Wow. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, food system. If you look at the totality of shellfish aquaculture, um, we actually probably don't even have a close second when it comes to sustainable food production. And that's something that has been my world my whole life. We're, we raise also um, certified organic beef. And certified grass-fed beef. Oh, you sure do. And we're going to talk about that next week. Great. Uh, but so, go on. Uh, so it's just something that we really appreciate about the, the sh- mm. these uh, nearshore sustainable seafood production.
It's amazing how, how well nature provides for herself. It is truly amazing. Uh, so, Kevin, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the program, and we look forward to talking to you about your beef operation next week. And we'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, and we will look forward to you joining us next week. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to join you. Okay, and this is what we think about the Drake's Bay Oyster Operation. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Rachel. Tony? Yes. How are you? This is Lorenzo. Hi, how are you doing? So, welcome back to the Heritage Radio Farm Report. We are here with Sonny Fitch from Catalpa Farms in Columbia City, Indiana. And Sonny, we're glad to have you with us here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So here on the Farm Report, we like to think of ourselves as a preserver of oral histories. So this is sort of a survey of American farming. It's like a state of the union. Sure. And we like to ask our farmers about the history of the land and how they became connected with us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Catalpa Farm and Columbia City and how you ended up in the position you are in now? Well, it, uh, it happened about uh, probably four years ago. My husband and I had our midlife crisis and decided we were tired of the city, thought we would move out to the country. So we bought a small farm um, and uh, started Catalpa Farm. Hmm. My dad had a midlife crisis. He didn't farm, though. No, no. We, we um, uh, Both of us grew up in the city, and my husband's grandparents had a dairy farm in southern Ohio. So he had uh, certainly uh, been around farms a lot in his youth, and he kind of missed that, and we were kind of ready for a change. And so that, that's really what prompted us moving out to the country. So just to get our listeners a little information about the kind of chickens you raise, you raise a chicken breed called the Delaware, correct? That's correct. So what are the characteristics of the Delaware chicken? Well, it was, um, it was a chicken that was developed in the 1940s specifically to be a broiler or uh, a meat bird. And it, um, it also is a, a good egg layer as well. And it really is a very gentle bird. Um, it's... It's nice because it has white feathers, so therefore the skin is white, which is something that um, we as consumers like to have a light-colored chicken here in America. And so it's, it's a really nice bird. It develops fast for uh, a heritage breed. And um, uh, we basically chose it because uh, uh, of those characteristics and because it's critically endangered. And so what are this, which species is the one that, for example, companies like Purdue have mass-produced by farmers? Well, there's, there's several um, 
genetic crosses that are used and copyrighted um, that the Purdue's, the Tyson's, and, and the other, the other um, companies use. So I, I can't tell you exactly which, what they do have, mm-hmm. but what, what's raised for the American food supply isn't considered a breed. It's not on a, a, a breed list because it, um, because it has been, I don't want to say mutated, but genetically it, it, modified. <laughs> it has been modified to the point where it's, it's really not even a breed. <laughs> um, so how are the Delawares better? What makes them a heritage breed? And explain okay. to our listeners, if you would, Sunny, what a heritage breed, what a heritage breed is. Well, um, actually, that, that part of the question is actually pretty easy because the uh, American Livestock Breed Conservancy just came out with some new regulation as to what is a heritage breed. But basically, for chickens, they're looking for a slow-growing chicken. Um, the heritage breeds take about 16 weeks to get to maturity, whereas the production chicken takes six to seven weeks. So that's the main thing. But it also has to be a breed that can reproduce itself, um, and that's important too. So why can't these, these genetically modified breeds reproduce themselves? Well, first of all, they're uh, physically unable to mate um, because of their body composition. Uh, they don't you, have any muscles. <laughs> well, if you think about it, if you look at the birds, like a whole bird that you get in a grocery store, sure. and you look at their legs, and you can see there's no way that those short little legs could support Are going to support this body. weight. So there's no way a male rooster could walk up to a female because they just, um, the body composition isn't there. And that's the problem they have, obviously, with the turkeys. Um, the turkeys, they've actually gone to artificial insemination. With chickens, they have not yet. But uh, especially the ALBC feels like that's coming soon. And so in their guidelines, one of the things that they specifically says is they can mate themselves, reproduce. So the product of the, so what do you think about the fact that heritage breeds are contingent on the duration of the maturity process? I mean, why should how long a bird takes to develop be a factor in whether it's considered a heritage breed? Part of... Um, Part of it just has to do with allowing the bird to come to maturity in all of its systems, in its, in its digestive system, in, you know, in, in, in the respiratory system, uh, the circulatory system. Because those other birds are slaughtered at six, seven weeks, the bird really hasn't had a chance to mature. And uh, although it's well big enough, there's enough meat on it to eat, the bird itself has not been allowed to grow and mature. So part of it is, is, is even just a, um, just a welfare of the animal, to treat it with respect and to allow it to become a mature animal before you slaughter it. Sure, which also plays a key role in how it ends up tasting. I mean, a stressed animal doesn't taste good. That's right. And, and it just uh, the fact that a, a heritage breed that's allowed to free range, run out in the field, it uses its muscles. The muscles have a lot more definition to them. Um, when you bite into a heritage turkey or a heritage chicken, you're going to taste a lot of texture to that meat. 
some people say, well, it's kind of tough and stringy. A little gamey. What you're, buy- what you're buying in the store is kind of mushy, if you want to think about it that way, because there's no muscle definition. Um, they've been, not, had, not had to use those muscles to do anything. Sure, and this, and pun very intended, this is sort of a chicken-egg situation because one wonders what developed first, the taste for the for the lower-quality meat or the lower quali- or did the lower-quality meat and the production thereof determine the tastes? Because right. the big producers will tell you that they're just making what the consumer wants, but they're also defining the taste. They're defining what the consumer is demanding. Right, and, and I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, you know, this is what... I remember chicken tasting like, um, or in the 18th I stopped century. buying them in the store because they don't taste like anything. So uh-huh. um, there's there's definitely something to it. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. So what are the taste profiles of these Delawares, and what sets their eggs apart from the rest? Well, um, the meat in particular, as we've talked about, um, is more fully developed. I think it has a much richer taste. When I make stock out of these chickens, it, it's just a dark stock. Um, mm. When you buy stock in the stores, you know, it's just this thin yellow. I'm not even sure what it is. But <laughs> the stuff I get is a dark, rich brown. So, um, so the, the meat is much richer. Obviously, we get a lot more dark meat because their legs and thighs are much bigger. I'm a dark developed. meat person myself. I don't understand why people like white meat more. <laughs> and, well, it's kind of good because with the heritage breeds, the breast meat is much smaller than what you get in the grocery store. But I've actually done some comparisons here in my own kitchen when I, I bought a chicken and used one of my chickens the same weight before cooking. And after cooking, I still have the same amount of meat, but it's definitely distributed differently on the carcass. Huh. Interesting. Um, so you have an interesting breeding system in association with Animal Welfare Approved, if I'm not mistaken. Well, what we did um, is... It's a selective breeding system, essentially, right? Well, the selective breeding system isn't necessarily associated with animal welfare. Um, the selective breeding system is, is actually more toward um, what the ALBC has come out with. Um, they have done some studies with, um, specifically with the buckeye chicken and trying to figure out how do we make this bird the best we can. Um, and it's something farmers have always done sure. in that you, you know, measuring the body composition. So um, It's like a eugenics movement for the animal. <laughs> yeah, you know, and just, just picking the, the, the strongest, you know, picking the birds that grow the fastest. Um, obviously, we're not looking for six weeks, but we do want a, a nice-sized bird at 16 weeks. So it's just a matter of developing a flock where you can um, have the best of that breed uh, represented. Okay, so one of our our famous heritage turkey farmer, Frank Rees, yeah. once spoke to me a lot about how he goes into the field and takes a good look at all his birds and really sort of has this ineffable ability to just ascertain which ones are going to be the strongest, um, the, the ones to pass on the strongest genes to the next mm-hmm. generation. Do you have that sort of do you have that sort of personal connection with your birds that you really go out and feel out which ones you think are the which ones are the ones? Well, um, I, I don't put me in the same category as Frank because he's certainly uh, much more knowledgeable than I am. But uh, you know, well, you're both approved by Heritage, so you're both really good. Oh well, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know what? It, it does take 
some observation, certainly. Um, and every time uh, we get ready for a processing, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at these and trying to decide which ones we think are going to be the best birds to keep mm-hmm. in, our, in our flock and which ones um, will best be for the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband makes fun of me because I'm always out just sitting watching the chicks. <laughs> sure. I mean, Frank tells us he used to watch with TVs another. with his turkeys and then the ones that would have the best responses to the programs, he would keep them. Exactly. No, I'm joking. Exactly. So, so it's not necessarily the obvious qualities like size, say, that would no, determine it, which it, ones you keep. There's a lot of factors. Yeah, we, we just certainly want uh, animals that uh, you know respond well to being outdoors, and, mm-hmm. and for the most part, they all do. But um, uh, we want to look at you know healthy combs and um, just other other factors. A lot of times with the the heritage breeds, though, their their feathers are um, really uh, puffed up so you until you pick up the bird and and really feel the body composition you know you could look at one and say oh that one's a nice size but uh, it could be all feathers so you you do have to have a lot of hands-on to uh to to make some decisions okay and how do you how do you raise these hens what do you feed them and um tell me a little bit about the process the feeding process and and just the general raising process well the raising starts with incubation, and we do incubate our, uh, our own eggs. Um, part of that was through uh, the a generous, generous grant from the Animal Welfare Institute. One of the things that they are real proponents of is not shipping chicks through the mail, which is the way the majority of people get uh, chicks for whatever their own personal use or whatever. So uh, we got a grant from them, so now we have a nice big tabletop incubator. We start with that. And um, from there, it's just a matter of uh, we supplement their feed with a real high-quality feed. And when they get to be somewhere between six to eight weeks, we um, usually move them to another building where they will have basically 24-hour access to the outdoors from that point on. And we're, I'm a big proponent of uh, open barns, uh, even mm-hmm. though we're here in Indiana and we have lots of snow and lots of cold weather. We basically keep the barns open 24 hours all year round. Um, mm-hmm. There are some exceptions to that. If it gets really cold, that you know, water, the watering systems are going to freeze or something, then we have to... Uh, make other measures but um well i mean in in much the same way as you pick the strongest members i mean if you baby a species yeah it's not really doing it any good that's right and uh, and these these birds seem to do very well you know going from the extreme colds of the winter to even our summers here are you know upper 80s uh lower 90s so they seem to do a pretty good job with both weather uh, weather is there anything specific to the Delaware that determines what you feed it or how you raise it? Or no, let's say I you had a different species, or you haven't had a different species. Well, so. actually, we do have um, we actually do have another flock that's separate from the Delawares. That's kind of a menagerie of several different heritage breeds, and and really they um, the the chickens are pretty much the same. They, we don't do anything specific to the Delawares that we wouldn't do for all of our animals. Do you ever take out like a control chicken and like feed it something different for, for 
the duration of its lifetime you know as we, an experiment to see if it would work with the rest of the flock? You know, I haven't necessarily done it with one chicken. Uh, a flock a couple years ago, I had read an, an old, uh, old chicken book. It was probably from 1908 that what this farmer did was he, um, like the week before processing, he would feed his chickens buttermilk, and huh. that put a layer of fat on the chickens because the heritage breeds have very little fat compared to what you would find in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did do that, and sure enough, they did, they did develop a nice marbling uh, that we had never seen before in any of the other processing. So and then did you start experiment. using that on the rest of your flock? Huh? Did, and then did you start using that from that point on? You know what? We didn't, but I've always kept that in mind as something that if we felt we needed to, we haven't had a lot of uh, requests or you know people saying, gee, they're, they're too low fat, so <laughs> we haven't mm-hmm. really felt the need to do that. Didn't really notice the taste difference in the meat, per se, just noticed the, the, the additional fat layer under the skin. I mean, I'm not a farmer, so you tell me. I mean, is there are there ethical implications to separating a few birds from their flock to sort of experiment with what might work better for the rest of them in the future? I mean, is that cruel to those individual birds? You know what? I don't. I don't think so. It, it, obviously, for me, it would be if they were in a cage. I <laughs> sure. would. I would hesitate. That would be doing the first problem. <laughs> because we're just so uh, we like to have our chickens, you know, have free access to the outdoors. So. Uh, but in and of itself, if you're not doing anything that's really going to harm the bird, I don't see why you couldn't experiment with that. Sure. Sure. Now, are birds a highly familial, are, are chickens a highly familial animal? I think so. You think I so? Think so. I think they, um, I mean, they really respond to, to, uh, to everyone around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... How successful have you been in ensuring that the Delaware doesn't disappear? I mean, if it weren't for you guys, we'd be talking about a nearly extinct species, right? Well, it's, it's getting pretty thin. Um, they are on the, uh, the critical list. which So why are we eating them? So why are we eating them? Because well, we have to eat them to keep them alive, right? You do. You do. You have to, you have, to have people willing to have flocks of, uh, that will continue to breed them which will then encourage, hopefully, other farmers to start using this breed and, uh, you know, and so on and so on. Um, but that's, uh, that's kind of one of our goals is um, the ALBC wants to have uh, breeding flocks of 50, but we really hope to have a breeding flock of about 200. Huh. In about another year, I think we'll, we'll probably be pretty close to that, of 200 really good birds so that, when someone wants this type of bird, they can you know, get it. We, we'll be able to give them a good quality bird. Sure. So you sort of, do you have like a copyright on the genetics? Oh, no. 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 This is, this is nothing, uh, uh, not a bird that you would have a, a copyright for. In fact, you can make your own Delaware chicken, and that's how the, develop, the Delaware chicken was developed. It is, um, it's a cross between... Uh, a New Hampshire hen and a Plymouth Barred Rock rooster. Oh, the old Plymouth Barred Rock, sure. <laughs> so, but let me ask you this. So now it depends on shows like this and farmers like the, the the future of the Delaware depends on shows like this and farmers like you getting people to eat this bird. Exactly. So it's this kind of counterintuitive concept that 
we only keep the species alive in so far as it suits our tastes. Yeah. Which is yeah, kind of messed and, up, but and it's not even just just the Delaware. I mean, there's several. Um, I don't know, maybe 20 breeds of chicken that are on the critical list. It's just a matter of getting people to recognize that those those fast-growing birds are great, easy money, but you're losing something with the species by not preserving what uh, what was very prevalent on farms 50 years ago. So we got to wrap up, wrap up in a couple minutes, but I want to ask you one more question. I understand that sometimes you have some issues with predators. Uh, Heather from Heritage Foods mentioned that owls have been wreaking some havoc on your land. Oh, yeah. Well, anytime you have birds out on pasture, you, you're, um, you know, it, they're beyond a safe part, in a, you know, locked up in a barn at night. So we uh, definitely this spring have had our share of predator problems, and we're constantly trying to devise new ways to keep them out of the hen houses at night uh, and still be, allow our birds to have access. So the owl is, uh, has been one of them, and uh, you know, we've, we've had <laughs> We've had... Uh, Any wolves? No wolves. Um, cougars? <laughs> no, but we have... No cougars? Been, uh, lots of coyotes cars? Uh, no. next to us. And so, you know, it's just a matter of uh, trying to outsmart those, those uh, critters. Well, I don't doubt that you'll be able to do that. I really appreciate you joining us, Sunny. Well, thank you. And uh, we hope to have you again soon. And we'd like to thank Hearst Ranch, our very philanthropic sponsor for uh, helping us produce this program. Thank you very much. And to all our listeners, you can listen to Sonny's talk on heritageradionetwork.com anytime. It will be archived forever, 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 forever.